The life of faith is a distance race. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It is long and it is difficult and it is very often painful like we talked about this morning in our connect groups. In fact, the word that the author uses to describe the race in verse 1 is the Greek word agon from which we get our English word agony, which tells you a little something about what it feels like often to run. The joy and the pleasure of running that you felt at the beginning of this life of faith, the sun warming your skin, the breeze in your face, that feeling of strength and energy and vitality that comes in the first couple of minutes of running, has been replaced now by less pleasurable sensations. It's about mile 10 or 15 or 20 in your race, and your face is sunburned and your side is cramping and your knees are aching and your mind is fighting that intense mental battle to not give up, to not give in, and to not go home. The race, for many of us, has become agony. That image of a marathon was the backdrop for the last couple of weeks' messages from Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and then Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. And it is the backdrop for this week's passage as well. God is training us, He is disciplining us in order that we may run the race with endurance as He exhorted us to do up there in verse 1. It is through pain and affliction through trial and tribulation that God stretches and strengthens our faith. He purifies our hearts for obedience to Him. In other words, God is like a a track coach who afflicts His runners in practice so that when race day comes, they may run with endurance and soar to victory. He's the track coach that causes His runners pain For their ultimate good. He's like the coach that knows that his runners are weak on the hills. So guess where he trains them? On the hills. Well this morning we are going to return to that metaphor. Of the race that was begun at the beginning of chapter 12. I want you to look with me at verses 12 and 13. It says something as to the state of the congregation to which he's writing and and to the place in the middle of the race where they find themselves. He says, therefore, therefore, because God is training you for your good, He is afflicting you so that you may run with endurance the race that is marked out for you. Therefore, because God is sovereign over the sufferings of our lives in order that we may make it to the finish line, therefore, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. Therefore, because God is training you, afflicting you, planning your pain for your good, don't give up. That's what he's saying. Don't quit. Persevere through the pain and finish the course. John MacArthur, who was quite the athlete in his day, he he explains the metaphor in this way. I want you to listen. 
He says the first thing that happens to a runner when he starts to tire is that his arms drop. The position and motion of the arms are extremely important in running to maintain proper body coordination and rhythm. Your arms actually help pull you through your stride, and they are the first parts of the body to show fatigue. The second to go are the knees. First the arms begin to droop, and then the knees begin to wobble. And make straight paths for your feet refers to staying in your own lane in the race. When you get out of your lane, you not only disqualify yourself, but you often interfere with other runners. A runner never intentionally gets out of his lane. He only does so when he is distracted or careless or when he loses his concentration on the goal or when fatigue robs him of the will to win, end quote. So the author is exhorting his congregation who are well into the race now and have grown fatigued. And he's yelling after them like a track coach. He says, strengthen your hands. Maintain your stride. Stay in your lane. Keep your eyes fixed upon the goal. Don't give up. Keep running. Keep pressing on. Finish the race. And we ought to hear the Holy Spirit speaking through this word to us this morning in the very same way. Don't quit. Strengthen those hands. Maintain that stride. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and keep going. Many of us need to hear that this morning. Because the life of faith has begun to hurt. Talked with some of you this morning. It's become agony. Your mind is, is a battleground between the flesh, which is crying out for comfort and for quitting, and the Spirit, who is urging you on to victory. And the Spirit is telling you, you must keep running so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. And I'm going to come back to that phrase momentarily, but I just want to point out to you that the author pictures the church as one runner, striving together in this life of faith, in this race of faith. And as we'll see throughout this passage this morning, every member of the body affects every other member who's here. When one person quits and drops out of the race, it has consequences for the whole body. Endurance is a corporate activity. We are here, among other things, for each other's perseverance. We are here to exhort one another as long as it is called today so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what he said in Hebrews 3 and verse 13. We're here with and for one another to speak to one another the words that I'm going to speak to you today. So the question is, how do we finish this race together? How do we strengthen weak hands and feeble knees? How do we make straight paths for our feet? What does perseverance look like? Well, verses 14 to 17 answer that question. They're linked together. This is not a, an entirely new section of the letter. This is linked in with what we've been tracking with since the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to answer that question, what does perseverance look like, by showing you three imperatives, that is commands, instructions from this text. All right. 
Imperative number one, okay, how do we persevere in this race? How do we strengthen weak hands and feeble knees and make straight paths for our feet? Number one, finishing the race requires that we pursue peace with all men. Now, the word that my Bible translates pursue is a very, very strong verb. It's not the usual word for seek. It's a word that conveys an intensity and an urgency in this pursuit, in this case of peace and reconciliation. It's actually the same word that in other contexts in the New Testament is translated persecute. It's a violent word. It refers to an intense, almost violent pursuit, one that is not easily dissuaded. We are to pursue peace with all men in the same way that a lion pursues its prey. Now, I point out the intensity of this verb because most of us, if we're honest, most of us only make a passing stab at peace. If disharmony exists between us and another member of the church family or a friend or, a, or an actual biological family member, we all too often make one feeble attempt at reconciliation and then if we're rebuffed, we retreat back into our proud little huddle and we just say to each other, well, I tried to make things right, but you know, they wouldn't have anything of it. You know? And then we wash our hands of the matter like Pilate at the trial of Jesus. That's not what the author has in mind. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all done it. There is to be an intense, unrelenting pursuit of peace. With whom? How many men? All men. I want to give you two reasons why. Why this intense pursuit. One negative and one positive. Negatively is this. We must pursue peace with all men because hostility and alienation, all right, that's the opposite of peace and reconciliation. Hostility and alienation destroys hearts and wrecks churches. Bitterness, unforgiveness will consume your heart like cancer consumes a body. It will consume your thoughts, it will wreak havoc on your emotions, and simply put, you cannot run an effective race apart from the diligent pursuit of peace. Bitterness and unforgiveness are some of those entangling sins to cut off and cast aside from verse 1 of chapter 12. You can't make it to the end with Bitterness harbored up in your heart. Broken relationships poisoning the well. It's like trying to run the marathon with a ball and chain fettered to your ankle. It's not going to work. So that's a negative reason why you need to pursue peace with all men. We need to pursue peace with all men because we will not make it to the, to the end without it. Positively though, we need to pursue peace with all men because this is God's purpose of grace in every one of our lives. This is His purpose of grace for every one of His children. This is why He disciplines us. Look up at verse 11. 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, i.e. the children, to those who are trained by the discipline of God, it yields in their lives the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peace. God disciplines His children in order to produce peaceful fruit in our lives. And His children respond to His discipline, i.e. are trained by it, such that they actually produce peaceful fruit. Therefore, if we would be assured that we are the children of God and that He is our Father, we ought to diligently and passionately and relentlessly and even violently, metaphorically speaking, pursue peace in order to prove ourselves the recipients of His transforming grace. We pursue peace with all men because peace is the fruit of God's Spirit in the lives of His children. And we want to be assured that we're His children. This is no carrot and stick works-based view of salvation. Right? Pursue peace and you'll be saved. That's not what this is saying. It is simply a recognition that peace is a necessary defining characteristic of the children of God, of those in whom the spirit of peace dwells. In other words, by saying pursue peace with all men, we're saying nothing different than what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Who are the sons of God, according to the Lord? Peacemakers. In the next chapter over, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. By the way, verses I'm convinced that we don't spend nearly enough time dealing with. He says that if you forgive others their transgressions, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. Then he turns it around in case we missed his point. But if you do not forgive others their transgressions, neither will my heavenly Father forgive you. Forgiveness, peace, reconciliation. These are the marks of the children of God. So the author simply draws this in. He says, you want to know what finishing the race looks like? It looks like working out what God is working in by His Spirit It's working out peace. So you can can spot a genuine believer by this. You can spot someone who is persevering in faith and is finishing his race by whether or not peace surrounds him. You know what I'm talking about? Peace surrounds him in in his relationships. Is he a peacemaker? Here's what that means. It means that he's not easily offended. It means that he's quick to admit fault. It means that he's quick to forgive. You can look at a man like that and say, there's a man who's running hard for the finish line. There's a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. So I want you to test yourself with this. Ask yourself some questions. Let me give them to you. Are you a peacemaker or a pot stirrer? You know what a pot stirrer is? A pot stirrer is 
someone who only shows up to a members meeting when there's a controversial issue on the docket. Why? Because they love it. They don't love the church when it's in unity. They love the church when it's in the midst of division. Why? Because it's exciting. Unity, that's boring. Church fights, you know? That's what really gets me going. There are people like that. They're probably not here this morning because they only show up at those business meetings. Is your heart inclined towards peace or is it inclined towards controversy? Check yourself. Let's get personal. Are you holding an offense against someone else and refusing forgiveness and reconciliation? Have you done what Hebrews 12.14 is commanding you to do, which is to pursue peace with that person with whom you're harboring a grudge? Flip that around. Are you aware of an offense that someone else is harboring against you that you need to seek to make right? Paul, Romans 12.18 says this. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Which is a recognition that you will not be at peace with everyone. You can't. But I think that the line of so far as it depends upon you is much further than many of us would care to admit. So First Baptist Nixa. If you would finish the race and receive the crown, then you must pursue peace with all men. Even the person that the Spirit is bringing into your mind right now. Yeah, that one too. Stalk it like a hunter stalks his prey. Why? For joy. For the joy of seeing relationships restored, the unity of the church preserved, the witness of the church strengthened, and listen, and for the joy of hearing God call you His child, because blessed are the peacemakers, for they, and only they, shall be called the sons of God. Finishing the race means pursuing peace. Secondly, It means pursuing holiness. Peace with all men and holiness before God. The the first is horizontal and the second goes vertical. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness. Your Bible may have holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. Underline that last part. Without which no one will see the Lord. We're going to come back to that. Here's what he's saying. Simply put, if you do not pursue holiness, and watch, you with me? Watch. And to some degree attain it, you will not cross the finish line and you will not receive the reward. That's an astounding statement. And it's one that doesn't often fall upon Southern Baptist congregations. But it's here, and so we need to deal with it. 
It contains, I believe, two essential truths, all right? One is not all that surprising, and the other one is really surprising. So let's deal with the more common sense one first. That's this. Holiness must be pursued. See, the same intense verb that says pursue peace also governs this phrase. Pursue holiness. I've watched my fair share of Discovery Channel in my day. It was like an addiction at one time. And I've noticed something. I heard an amen in there. Yeah. Discovery Channel, it's awesome. I, I've, I've never seen one of those like African safari shows where the gazelle strides up to the lion, lays down in front of it and says, eat me. Have you? Rather, the lion must stalk, pursue, and overtake the gazelle and wrestle it to the ground and grip its throat until it dies. You get the point. Neither does holiness come to the believer apart from our diligent, relentless pursuit of it. This means that indwelling sin must be stalked and killed. You must make war on those sins which hinder holiness. Cut them off and cast them away like we spoke about with the sin that so easily entangles. Identify them by the word. That's why we need this time. That's why we need our connect groups in order to know what sin is. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what coveting is had the law not said you shall not covet. We need help in identifying the sins in our lives, and we, we get that help from the Word, by the Spirit, so we need to identify those sins, and then when they're identified, we need to kill it. Put it to a merciless death. Because there's a whole lot at stake, as you're going to see here in the latter part of this verse. Kill sin, so we pursue holiness by killing sin, and then by cultivating Those things in our life in which holiness consists, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We need to cultivate holiness through the means of grace that God has provided. The means of grace like the Word, prayer, the sacraments, small group accountability and fellowship, discipleship. Those sort of things that cultivate holiness in our hearts like cultivating vegetables out of a garden or fruit from trees. So pursue holiness. If you do not pursue holiness, you will not attain holiness. Did you hear that? Pursuing holiness means you you put sin to death and you cultivate righteousness. If you do not pursue holiness, you will not attain holiness. That's not surprising. If we were honest, we would say, yeah, I've noticed that by experience. I've never made any great gains in godliness without great effort in the pursuit of it. Here's the second thing. If you do not pursue holiness, you will not attain holiness. And if you do not, to some extent, attain holiness, you will not attain heaven. That's surprising. That's startling. Not merely pursued, 
but in some measure attained. That is exactly what he says. Look at it. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we do not pursue and attain holiness, then we will not see the Lord. In other words, you will not finish the race. In other words, you will not be saved. Startling. Scary, a little bit. Unless we understand it right. But it's not the only place in Scripture that says this. Jesus said exactly the same thing in Matthew 5 and verse 8. Another one of those Beatitudes. When he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Would you agree that pure in heart is the same thing as holy? Can we agree to that? Thank you. (laughs) Maybe we can't agree to that. Well, it is. Just take my word for it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who sees God? The pure in heart. Paul said in Romans 8.13, if, 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 by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. So who lives? Those who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit, right? Only the holy go to heaven. But wait, good Protestants. Some of you are having a little bit of difficulty here. Doesn't this establish a salvation based upon our own merit, upon our own works of righteousness, upon, upon our own ability to attain a certain level of righteousness Isn't that like, I don't know, Catholic? How does Hebrews 12.14 and Matthew 5.8 and Romans 8.13 and a whole handful of other passages, how do those square with the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works? Well, let me first state this so that we lay everyone's fears to rest, okay? I absolutely, utterly abominate the false gospel of salvation by works of any kind. By works of self-righteousness, works of self-effort, works of self-merit. No, 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 no. Sinners are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. God saves sinners who do not deserve it, who do not work to earn it, but who merely rely upon Christ with a God-given faith. There is not even a whiff of human merit, human effort, human righteousness in God's free justification of sinners. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Are we clear? All right. But... There is all the difference in the world between saying that holiness is a necessary condition of our acceptance before God and our justification and regeneration in Him, which is entirely false, and saying that holiness is a necessary consequence of our acceptance before God, our justification, our 
regeneration which is entirely true and is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. It is not a condition of your salvation, it is a consequence of your salvation. When I say that without holiness, none of us will see the Lord, I'm saying the same thing that Jesus said when he said you must be born again, or else you will not see the kingdom of heaven. All who have saving faith have been born again, and that new birth brings about a change in nature, a change in our affections, a change in our abilities, and it renders a person increasingly willing and able to pursue and attain a level of obedience to God by the power of the indwelling Spirit, which is why, at the very end, all glory belongs to God and not to us. Because it is God who freely put His Spirit within you, And it is God who by His Spirit is causing you to will and to work for His good pleasure. But if there is no holiness, then it must mean that God is not willing and working in you for His good pleasure, which means that the Spirit does not reside within you, which means that you are not saved. That's how this works. So finishing the race means pursuing and to some measure attaining the holiness for which Christ redeemed you and the Spirit indwells you. That's why James is not violating the gospel when he says that faith without works is dead. Now, I keep qualifying. You've noticed it. I've said it with air quotes, which don't do that, by the way. That's, nobody likes that. To some measure, right? Have you heard me say that? You must pursue and to some measure attain holiness. The reason why I state it like that is because you will struggle against sin and you will wrestle against the flesh for the rest of your natural life. You will not perfectly attain to holiness in this life. But you must progressively attain to it. It is the picture of an army that is waging war against the enemy. This war will not finally be won in this life, but you should see triumphs and victories along the way, as well as defeats and failures. And over the course of your life, you should be able to look back and see that forward progress has been made. Ground has been gained. It is the one who has fought to the end in this battle for holiness, inch by bloody inch, by the Word and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that will see the Lord coming to His rescue on the last day to slay the enemy of sin with the breath of His mouth. So the question is, are you fighting against sin? Are you fighting for holiness? That's how you finish the race. That's what perseverance looks like. Are you fighting for holiness? Because if so, you will see the Lord. Finally, finishing the race requires that we keep watch over one another's souls. Perseverance is not an individual endeavor. The race is not an individual sport. We run this thing together and we do not leave others behind. When one of us falters, when one of us grows weak, when knees grow feeble, when when a limb of the body of Christ becomes lame, then we attend to it so that it will not be put out of joint, but rather be 
healed. You remember that from verses 12 and 13? In other words, we watch over one another's souls. And the author gives us, in verses 15 to 17, three warning signs to watch for. He says, number one, watch for gracelessness. See to it, you, church, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, which is to be understood as a general overarching warning against apostasy. Okay, if we were to fit it back into the race metaphor, we would say, see to it that no one falls behind and drops out of the race. It's the same essential warning that was given in Hebrews 2 against drifting away from the word of the gospel, and in Hebrews 3 against not being like the wilderness generation who came short of the promised rest, or Hebrews 6 about those who fell away, or Hebrews 10 about those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And the exhortation is addressed to the church as a whole. It's not addressed to the one who has fallen behind. They can't hear it. It's addressed to those of us who are still here, who are still running. And it is saying, watch out for one another. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That is the finish line. Watch out for those in our midst who become cold, distant, apathetic, absent. Look out for stragglers. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would fill our minds right now with stragglers. Because this is not like like a truth that's out there and we just look at it and we say, hey, that's true, that's wonderful, that's, that's neat. This is a truth that is meant then to be put into action so that we actually go and pursue them and seek to bring them back into the race. So watch out for the graceless. Secondly, watch out for bitterness. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Right next to this Deuteronomy 29.18, okay, it's, a, it's sort of a loose quotation of Deuteronomy 29.18, where it is clear that what is spoken of is not so much bitterness and unforgiveness, right? He dealt with that up in verse 14 with the issue of peace, but rather one of rank apostasy. He's speaking of an infectious weed in the garden of his people. He's speaking of those who have become hard-hearted and rebellious and irreverent and embittered against God. He says the church needs to attend to that person. And frankly, the church needs to root him out lest he spread like a weed and infect the rest of the garden. So here's the connection between these two phrases in verse 15, right? I picture the graceless, those who are falling short, as sort of a passive falling away and they need to be sought and rescued and restored. I picture the bitter roots as those who are actively spreading dissension and doubt and sin and corruption like a cancer through the body and they need to be rooted out. The graceless need to be rescued, the bitter roots need to be rooted out. In other words, there are times when the garden needs to be weeded. Third, watch out for the godless. Watch out for godlessness. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
Esau serves as the author's example of immoral godlessness. Here's where he's getting this. Okay? Immoral because he married two pagan Canaanite women who Genesis 26-34 says brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Okay? So he didn't marry within the family. He married for lust. And he, and he married these pagan Canaanites. And then, godless because he despised his birthright and everything that that spoke to. He despised the promise of God and the inheritance of God and the better country and everything that we've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 11. Here's what he did. He traded eternal joys for temporary satisfaction. He was a man who was ruled by his passions rather than ruled by God's promise. And he stands as an example today of those who forsake their eternal inheritance, in particular for the single meal of sexual sin. If you remember the story from Genesis 25, Esau grew tired of being hungry. His flesh was starving and it was crying out for satisfaction. Likewise, there are many who have simply grown tired of striving for purity. Tired of it. Their flesh is hungry for satisfaction. So they willingly trade their birthright for the freedom to satisfy the desires of sin. Which is why I need to read to you verse 17. It's a chilling warning. For you know that when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. There's no going back. No undoing what he had done. The blessing had been given to Jacob, and Esau could, get it, could not get it back, no matter how hard he wept. Which serves as another reminder, we saw it before in Hebrews 6, 4-6, through 6, that there is a point of no return. It is possible, hear me beloved, hear me while you are here. It is possible to sell eternal salvation for temporary pleasure. And this is precisely what we must watch out for in one another particularly in those who are young. We need to guard one another's purity. We need to hold one another accountable and we need to pray for one another. And if we suspect that a brother or a sister has something wrong and creeping up in their life, if we suspect that maybe they're being seduced by the adulterous woman, you remember the adulterous woman from Proverbs? says her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but her feet go down to death and her steps lead to hell. That woman, if we see that woman seducing someone in our midst, then we must go and confront that person in love and in wisdom and with the stern warning of this passage. We must plead with them, do not sell your birthright. It's not Worth it. The single meal of sexual sin will leave you still hungry. We are our brother's keeper and eternities are at stake. Is that clear? 
is let me close with some comfort. Because when I preach on this passage, or Hebrews 6, or Hebrews 10, there are undoubtedly some of you here, I have been there at a point in my life too, who you wonder if you're Esau. Because to you, you hear the words, you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and it falls on you like a hammer. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And it strikes you with terror because you relate the experience of Esau to your own. Because you too turned your back on the birthright in order to pursue the passing pleasures of sin. And you tremble this morning while you're sitting there in your chair thinking, does this mean I can't come home? Does this mean that I'm rejected and forsaken of God? Is this why I feel so distant from him? Are my tears to no avail? Was I fooling myself in thinking that I could come back home, that I could come back to the realm of his blessing, having sold my birthright for for the fleshly pleasure of sin, and that God would just restore me freely to his estate? Was I kidding myself? And some of you are thinking that. I want you to take courage this morning in this truth. Esau is not the only figure in the Bible who sold his birthright for the passing pleasures of sin. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15 of a prodigal son who sold his birthright. He demanded his inheritance from his father, turned his back on his father, and went and spent all of his inheritance to pursue prostitutes and parties. It says. But it also says that when he came to his senses and he returned to his father in repentance, he was not rejected. He was received. He was loved. He was showered with grace. And and the father ran to him, embraced him, and said, You are my son, and you were dead, and you're alive, and you were lost, and you were found. Let's throw a party. Right? That's Luke 15. It's in the Bible too. So what's the difference between the prodigal son and Esau? The difference is this. The prodigal son could repent. He comes back to the father not seeking the reestablishment of his inheritance, but saying, I'm starving and my father has food. And so he comes back and he says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. And nothing of the sort could emerge from Esau's heart or his lips. He could not repent. See, I have no desire to take the teeth out of the warning of Hebrews 12, 17. It is terrifying. And it is there for a reason. What reason? To terrify you about the consequences of pursuing sexual sin. Don't play around with immorality. For how do you know that when it is over, when the meal is finished, that you will come to your senses? Nobody comes to their own senses. They are awakened to their senses. See, repentance is a gift God grants repentance to sinners. And how do you know that God will grant you repentance if you thumb your nose at His Word and spend your birthright to satisfy your flesh thinking, I'll just ask forgiveness later. 
He may bring you to your senses like the prodigal son. And he may leave you in your sin like Esau. There's the warning. Don't don't take its teeth and its claws out. It's there. There may be a time when you desire to inherit the blessing, but you can no longer repent. You can no longer feel conviction. You can no longer feel any affection for Christ. So take heed, beloved, and do not presume upon the grace of God. But, but, this warning is not intended to drive repentant sinners to despair. So let me be clear. God will forgive the sin of any who repent. Period. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says God, but rather that He would repent and live. So, if you feel conviction of sin this morning, if you feel a desire for the Father's home and for the Father's table and for the Father's embrace and for the Father, you're not Esau. Not if you feel a desire for the Father's riches. Esau had that. But if you feel the desire for the Father, you're not Esau. And God's posture towards you is the very same as the posture of the father of the prodigal son. He runs to greet you. He longs to embrace you. He showers you with His affection. He puts the robe of Christ's righteousness all over you, covering every bit of your filth and sin. He puts the ring of sonship upon your fingers, and He says to the hosts of heaven, it's time for the feast. For my Son who was lost has been found. He who was dead has been made alive. And listen, beloved, listen you, repentant sinners, we have a foretaste of the feast. So as we open up the Lord's table this morning, I want you to hear the words of the, prodigal, of the father of the prodigal son as addressed to you. Come to my table, it waits for you. And rejoice with me in the feast of my grace. My father, I pray that the warning of this passage would fall hard and heavy over every person here who is toying with sin. And I pray that the feast of Your grace which is offered to us through the mercy of Jesus Christ would call out sweetly to everyone in despair. For His blood is able to cover every sin and His grace is sufficient to atone for every iniquity. And so I pray for all the children of God here this morning. Would they hear in the words of the supper, this is my body. 
which was broken so that you could come home. This is my blood which was shed so that you could come home and sit at my table and be forgiven of all of your shame and sin. Take, eat, drink in remembrance of me. I ask this in Jesus' name.